I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to this Pride Encore presentation of Capehart. On February 22nd, Washington Post Live hosted a series of conversations on the quest for an HIV vaccine. That very morning, the New York Times reported on a study that recommended those with MPOX should also be tested for HIV. This was great timing because my conversation was with Dr. Dimitri Daskalakis, the deputy coordinator for the White House National MPOX response. MPOX does not live in isolation. It interacts with other infections as well as sort of social circumstances that makes those infections worse and uh, impacts communities. And Dr. Daskalakis talks more extensively about those social circumstances, including the role stigma plays in propagating both viruses and whether we will achieve the goal of eradicating HIV-AIDS by 2030. So uh, you are on loan from the CDC, <laughs> where you are the director of the Division of HIV Prevention at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And we will talk about HIV specifically in a moment. But there's a story in, in the New York Times today that brings the two. Uh, monkeypox, uh, for those who are not initiated, is now MPOX. The, the link between MPOX and HIV, um, that people who have MPOX should also be tested for HIV. Talk about the significance of this story. Sure, so the significance really is one about interacting epidemics that are made worse by social determinants of health. We've heard a lot about that today. That's called a syndemic. And so MPOX does not live in isolation. It interacts with other infections as well as sort of social circumstances that makes those infections worse and uh, impacts communities. So, um, you know, I'll say back in September, uh, of last year, there was a publication from CDC that showed that 41% of people who were diagnosed with MPOX were also living with HIV. Um, in October, um, another publication came out from CDC and MMWR that really focused on the 57 um, severe cases that they heard about hospitalized individuals. And at that time, what they found was that over 80% of them were living with HIV, only 10% of them were taking antiretroviral medications, and many, many of them, the vast majority, had T-cells of less than 50, mm -hmm. which I haven't seen in a cohort that large since I did medicine in the 90s. And so definitely um, recent data that's emerged from uh, Chloe Orkin, who's a fabulous uh, uh, clinician um, from the UK, really affirms the fact that uh, MPOX does not live in isolation and more severe disease can occur in people living with HIV, which is why um, when you think MPOX, you need to think um, HIV testing as well. In fact, when you think HIV testing, you should think MPOX vaccine because they're interacting epidemics and it's an opportunity to do uh, prevention um, beyond just one infection, but rather in that syndemic, that interacting epidemic model that really um, addresses what people need in their daily lives and um, their health-seeking behavior. So um, it's definitely a very important finding and one that I think, um, you know, as early as September uh, of last year, CDC actually included uh, monkeypox or mpox on the list of opportunistic infections. So it's already there. And I think that this study just affirms the fact that um, we need to sort of be holistic in our, our prevention approach, including HIV and MPOX. So then where are we today in terms of controlling the spread of MPOX? Do we have it under, under control, if, if that's the right word? Yeah, I want zero. So we're not at zero yet. So we have two about two cases um, per day reported in the United States. And that's down from? Over 400. So um, there have been over 30,000 cases in the United States. And so definitely um, 
in, infections are slowing down, but they continue uh, to occur. Um, we see uh, fewer and fewer counties um, are reporting new MPOX cases, which is great news, but this is really not the time for us to back off. It's time to actually push the accelerator down faster on vaccine. We are talking today about HIV vaccine. We don't have one yet. We do have an MPOX vaccine, which we should talk about as a dress rehearsal for the HIV vaccine, because the same equity issues that we saw in MPOX vaccination are inevitable in HIV vaccine unless we work as Clover said earlier today um, to actually address um, sort of trust and prevention services for people um, with a clear awareness on equity. So we're definitely making progress um, and we need to hustle on vaccine um, for MPOX because um, <clears throat> spring and summer are coming and that tends to be when people have more interactions that could lead to MPOX exposure. So really working to create that immune force field that we need with vaccine needs to happen now. So then, what are you learning from the MPOX response that might impact the, the, the response to HIV in other infectious diseases? I know you just said this is the dress rehearsal in terms of a vaccine for, for HIV in, term, in terms of equity, but talk about science, scientifically. Are you learning things dealing with MPOX that are instructive for coming up with an HIV vaccine? Sure, well, I'll, I'll start by talking about um, what we've learned from the behavioral science. I think that that's really important. So the first is that if you provide people information in a way that they understand, they actually take you up on what you've told them to do. So I, I think that MPOX is an example where we've been very clear in messaging, talking about sex talking about sexual health. And the result is that populations actually change their behaviors for a while as we ramped up vaccination. Um, so that I think is probably one of the most instructive lessons, not only for how we should message better in HIV prevention, but also in how we're going to need to uh, message when we have an effective HIV vaccine. Um, I think vaccines on the shelf don't really prevent diseases. They have to go into people's arms. But before they go into people's arms, you have to get into people's heads and hearts. And I think that we really have a lot of work to do to make sure that um, we sort of set the runway um, appropriately so we can land an HIV prevention plane with the vaccine when we have it. Because right now that um, runway is full of obstacles and most of them are equity related. Um, in terms of just general science, I think that the study that you talked about is, I think, show, is very instructive, which is that none of these infections live in isolation. HIV does not live in isolation. It interacts with viral hepatitis. It interacts with uh, challenges to people's mental health. It interacts with substance use. It interacts with um, social determinants like housing, racism, sexism, homophobia, all of those things. And so I feel like one of the more instructive moments in the science of MPOX is that the way that you intervene on interacting epidemics or syndemics is with a similarly fashioned syndemic approach. If you just focus on one thing, if you just focus on HIV, you're not gonna win the battle because it's about the sexism, it's about the homophobia, it's about the transphobia, it's about the racism. And if you address those factors, um, even imperfectly, you're going to have a better outcome in disease prevention.
So then the, the word that comes to mind, and I, and I wrote it down and circled it so I wouldn't forget, is stigma. Yeah. I mean, you, one of the reasons or part of the reason that we can't have open conversations about sex, open conversations about behaviors that lead to increased infection is because of stigma. How do we deal with that? Not just the stigma that um, people feel, yeah. um, the person with the virus feels, but also the stigma of society at large. How do you change those two things at the same time? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the important things that we did recently at CDC, which I think is emblematic of, of, of how to respond to this, is to really realize that, um, that risk is something that is, uh, is not real. That risk is something that we create, saying somebody is high risk. Some behavior is high risk actually creates like a level of stigma that prevents people from seeking services. And so really thinking about, you know, there are, there are um, not people who are high risk, but situations that are potentially high risk that we can, that we can address. There are risk factors, but really sort of, the, one of my favorite doctors said to me that, um, that when you talk to someone about their high risk behavior on Friday, you don't realize that for them, that was a good Friday night. And so, it, right? So if, if you start the dialogue by saying like, you are a high risk person, who's gonna walk through that door? Do you wanna walk through a door that says you're a high risk person? I certainly don't. And so really um, shifting the narrative into sexual health, shifting the negative, the, the narrative into a strategy that is what we call at CDC status neutral, which says like, it doesn't matter what your status is. We just need to identify services and, and interventions that work for you, as opposed to sort of create like this impossibility of you have a flashing HIV sign that you have to walk in under and that that it's going to somehow be comfortable for people who may not be comfortable with sort of identifying themselves as people as at risk. Okay, yeah. so I want to go back to your Friday night yeah, uh, analogy go. because it, the, the, uh, everyone <laughs> reacted to that. Um, and I think with good reason. For a lot of people, that Friday night was a fun time. Totally. So, how, so then how do you talk to that person? Yeah. How do you get them to come through the door and see what's the language is what I'm getting? Yeah, I mean, I, I think first is, um, and I think we heard before, like every piece of the service interaction needs to be about um, affirming people's lives. As we sit here and um, there are attacks happening on LGBTQ people, that is bad HIV prevention, right? So things that, that prevent transgender health, um, things that prevent health for LGBTQ people, things that prevent health for women of color, including sort of deeper issues around reproductive health, all of those things are going to increase HIV rates. So the very important thing is that the service environment needs to be conducive to people walking in the door. So it's not how we want to deliver service, it's how people want those services delivered that needs to be the focus. And you so, weren't done. Keep no, going. I, I, yeah. So, so we have to sort of we have to sort of step back and listen to the community and listen to the folks that we serve and not say we're going to build this and they come, but rather say, how can we make what we build more amenable to people coming to us and how can we reach them where they are? And so I feel like a lot of the stigma conversation has to do with the fact um, that, that there are institutional factors that maintain systems of stigma within HIV that need to be disrupted. And 
reality is it's work to disrupt them, blending funding, sort of CDC funding and HRSA funding in a way to create um, a door that everyone can walk through and get the services they need, and also that every door leads to the services they need as well, is a really important strategy. And so um, really looking at the way that we um, deliver care and deliver service, we need to be critical and we need to say, just because it's worked for the 86% of people who know their HIV status, the 65% of people who are virally suppressed in the US, how do we get to the 15, 16% that don't know their status, who aren't going to come to sort of the care services we've provided, and how can we get to the people who are living with HIV, who aren't on antiretroviral medicines, to get them on medicines so it's good for their own health and also prevents transmission, U equals U, which we heard about before. And it really um, requires folks to step back there's work to be done to blend funding like DC has done as an example is work. And Clover could talk to you about that more if she were on stage, <laughs> but it's, it's work, but that work has benefits. You see benefits in viral suppression. You see benefits in, in quality of life that, that people sort of encounter when they come into services. So, um, you know, I think that um, there's lots of ways to think about disrupting stigma. I'm gonna say one more thing before the next thing is really important. Like, so we often look at public health as a way to solve the issue of stigma and inequity. Social justice, which is an all of society intervention, is really the way. Public health can address symptomatic pieces of inequity that touch health, but unless we look at housing, racism, sexism, transphobia, um, we're not going to get there because public health only is a band-aid on top of those issues because that's what drives infection and what really leads us to poor outcomes in HIV. So then the next question I just wrote down, because this all makes sense, but then how much of an impediment are the people in this town at either end of Pennsylvania Avenue, particularly the one down there with the dome? Um, I <laughs> so... Hmm, trying to think about buildings with domes. So the, the, uh, I, I feel like there's a lot of opportunity to teach people. And I think that, um, that there are challenges, I think that definitely sort of looking at um, how we can express better um, the importance of, of uh, HIV-related public health to folks, I think is critical. And I think that people in this room, um, folks that work in community-based organizations, advocates, their voices are really important to make it clear that this isn't about red state, blue state. This is about people's health. And we know that we have interventions that work. We need a vaccine. I know that's why we're here. A vaccine would be amazing. But we also have interventions that can really control the HIV epidemic. And if we focus on people's health and provide them the services that they need, people's viral loads become undetectable. People go on pre-exposure prophylaxis, which you've heard about before, or PrEP. And what happens is you shut down HIV transmission. I need to say one important thing, which is that there is a dose response um, with HIV um, outcomes with funding. So I think um, having worked in New York um, and sort of seeing an influx of funding for HIV prevention around the local ending the HIV epidemic initiative, with that influx of funding, you can look at the epidemiology where cases of, of HIV and incidence of HIV decreased once that funding landed um, into um, really service providers. Same for the United States. I think we have um, in the president's budget, 
great opportunities. There was an opportunity for a, pre a national pre-exposure prophylaxis program um, that didn't get, uh, get sort of realized in Congress. Um, there is ending the HIV epidemic, which is not fully realized in terms of its funding. So I think that um, you know, public health resources are critical for public health success. And so really looking at ways that we can you know, get the attention of folks in, building, uh, in certain buildings with domes uh, to remind them <laughs> that, um, that HIV prevention is critical uh, and it saves hundreds of millions of dollars. Lifetime cost of someone living with HIV is $500,000. If you prevent that infection, you save $500,000. And so it is either, it's very often cost effective, at least if not cost savings, to do the work to prevent HIV. And that's really what's behind all of the work. It's about, about really making sure that people's health is good, but actually it is cost effective. It is a financial intervention. So if folks can hear that, um, an investment in HIV goes a long way. That's an interesting, that's a good message. I can imagine that it will land on certain ears in that building with the dome uh, quite well. Uh, in the three minutes that we have left, I want to try to get through a, a bunch of things. How close are we to achieving the global goal to end HIV AIDS by 2030? Reference prior statement. So if appropriately resourced, we have the technology to be able to get us to a place of really good HIV control. We need an HIV vaccine. Right. So period, like no matter what. So I think that, um, you know, at this point, I think it is um, aspirational for us to achieve the goals by 2030 for a couple of reasons. One, not adequately resourced, which we talked about. And two, COVID. I think we will have sort of aftershocks of COVID for a while. Like HIV diagnosis rate will increase because folks have uh, not been diagnosed because of some care interruptions that happened during COVID. Mm -hmm. Not diagnosing people with HIV during COVID also means that they weren't aware of their status and may not have gone on antiretroviral medications so they could potentially um, uh, pass the infection forward. So I think, I think that we're gonna have a, it's a tall order to achieve the goal by 2030. We're all trying our best to get there, but resources are needed. Um, then how close are we to an HIV vaccine scientifically? Yeah, no, I mean, I think that we're, I, I, so much of what we know about immunology has come from HIV. And so it's exciting to see that sort of what HIV has provided to the world is now coming back to HIV, sort of the COVID experience, the mRNA experience. We've heard from colleagues from Yavi about this as well. You know, I think that there are scientific challenges. HIV is um, a tricky virus. Um, there's different kinds of immune responses that are needed to control it. So I think that, you know, the vaccine machine is in the right place to um, sort of move forward. And I think it's a, a space to watch. Um, I wish I had a crystal ball and could tell you how soon we would have one, but I think that advances in immunology are, are getting rapid again. So I think that we have a really good shot. We are not there yet, but I think that, um, that the energy is, is in the right place to move this forward. Uh, and in the minute that we have left, uh -oh. in your view, which cities are taking the best approach uh, to ending HIV uh, AIDS or coming up with the most innovative ways to support people living with HIV? Not just because I'm sitting in DC, <laughs> but I really think that um, I, I, I love all of our grantees. So I'll start by that and saying like every city has really, really great strategies. But some of the cities um, that have sort of shifted their portfolio into this, this status neutral space where it's service delivery um, based on what people need as opposed to simply their HIV status, DC, New York City, 
Chicago, San Francisco, like the places that are really epicenters for HIV have really um, been great examples. But I think that there are also some fantastic rural examples like Kentucky that's done really innovative telemedicine um, and all of these other strategies to end HIV that's appropriate for their context. So I've listed some of the ones that are sort of highlights for me, but I'll say that um, we've seen so much great work across the country um, that we need to keep those lessons and learn them not only for what we do here, but also what we do internationally, because I'll also say international examples out there are important to us, like PEPFAR. I think we're getting sort of bi-directional inspiration um, from each other. Like some of our ideas are moving into the international space and some of the great PEPFAR ideas we're pulling into what we're doing every day in the U.S. Okay, since we're already out of time, keep it, well, it, PEPFAR uh, and the lessons of PEPFAR um, in the United yes. States. Give, give a, an example. Yeah, I, I think that from the PEPFAR perspective, um, their amazing ability to understand um, what their countries are doing from the perspective of data and using that data in real time to address um, changes in their programming is perhaps my number one most inspirational thing that I hear from them. Um, I think for us, like I think our status neutral service delivery model, our syndemic focus, which includes both in communicable and non-communicable diseases, is something that they're very inspired by. So, um, you know, such great conversations. I think MPOX helped that as well, but so many great interactions and conversations about how we can inspire more excellence, um, both internationally and domestically is really exciting. All right, one, one more question. Okay. Are you going back to the CDC? I, I, my intention is to go back to CDC. I think that we're just uh, sort of dealing with what transition looks like, but uh, it, you know, I, I, that's the goal. Okay, <laughs> Dr. Dimitri Daskalakis, Deputy Coordinator for the White House National MPOX Response. Thank you. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for listening to Capehart. It's edited by Nick Roberts. We'll have new episodes for you every Thursday. I'm Jonathan Capehart. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.